0: Welcome to Walter Edwards' Journal. With me in the studio today is Professor Russell Fielding of Coastal Carolina University. He is a geographer there, but he's also taught environmental studies. And his most recent employment before coming to Coastal Carolina was the University of West Indies in Barbados. And that's why Russell is here today, because we're going to talk about the continuing South Carolina-Barbadian connection. So, Russell, with that kind of lengthy introduction, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Let's talk a little bit about you. This is South Carolina. Who are you? Where you come from? Who your folks? Uh, that kind of thing. Where did you grow up?
1: Well, I was born and raised in Tampa, Florida. Spent most of my childhood and, and the first part of college there. And starting in graduate school, I embarked on a, a journey that's taken me back. Uh, pretty widely around the United States and abroad occasionally. Um, As the introduction mentioned, I've come here most recently from Barbados, where my family and I were living uh, just up until the pandemic began when we decided to move back to the U.S.
0: Okay. Um, And where did you do your, your schooling?
1: My undergraduate work was at the University of Florida. I did graduate degrees in geography at both the University of Montana and Louisiana State University.
0: So, okay. You got two PhDs?
1: A master's and a PhD. Oh,
0: okay. All right. And you've taught at the University of the South in Suwanee? That's right. Okay. Wow. You have, you have moved around. Um, when you went to the University of the West Indies, were you aware of the Carolina West Indian connection?
1: Not at all. I, I learned about it there while I was in Barbados. It is something that uh, many Barbadians are aware of, uh, are, are proud of. Um, among the Barbadian intellectuals, it is something of a source of pride that their country had influenced the founding of several other places. Uh, not only the Carolinas, uh, also Jamaica and some of the smaller Caribbean islands as well.
0: Yes, it. it it was kind of a hearth for the British Caribbean. And, of course, there are folks who debate, is South Carolina a link with the Caribbean, or is uh, it a bridge? They've talked about that really for several hundred years. People have always recognized, at least in South Carolina, that connection. But I must say, in terms of American history, when I came through graduate school in the 1960s, uh, it was kind of out there, but it really wasn't, and then in the '70s, it took off when people began to discover or rediscover, particularly the cultural lakes. Um, I'm very interested in the fact that Barbadians are aware of this, and they talk about it. Um, just give some examples.
1: Well, there are still uh, familial ties between Bajan families and families here in the Carolinas. Uh, we we knew people in Barbados who had relatives here in the Carolinas, both north and south, and would visit them frequently. Um, the, uh, the connections between agricultural history, um, uh, human movement, a lot of the population that traces its roots from the Carolinas back to England does so by way of Barbados. So Barbados is uh, equipping itself, uh, becoming well-equipped, to handle the genealogical inquiries that people from the United States make. Uh, Many uh, Americans who have discovered their own Bajan roots have made pilgrimages to Barbados to learn more about their family history. And to its credit, the Barbadian government is doing its part to make those records more easily accessible and organized for researchers that have come to find out.
0: And so did you begin to delve into any of that or what were you teaching at the University of the West Indies?
1: So my my background is environmental geography and my, my research history has long involved the uh, environments and environmental change in the Caribbean. So I saw this opportunity to be based in the Caribbean permanently as a real asset to my research. Uh, I was teaching um, several courses that needed to be covered due to the absence of some other faculty members. So my teaching didn't necessarily overlap with my research, but because I was so well steeped in the Caribbean for my environmental teaching, I, I was able to create uh, field-based experiences for my students. I would I would take students out of the classroom. We'd we'd go down to the beach. We'd go up to a to a, a mountain peak. The the mountains are pretty small in Barbados, uh, but we'd we'd go to the sites where we would be learning about. Um, many of my students, even the ones originally from Barbados had not been to these places on their own island before. So it was very rewarding to me to be able to take them to these places and show them what the environment was like.
0: Well, when you talk about the impact of humans on the environment, obviously with the introduction of sugar culture to Barbados, that completely transformed the landscape.
1: It did. Uh, Barbados was forested uh, prior to the introduction of sugar. And today is uh, very nearly clear-cut. There are some remaining forests in some of the gullies, uh, maybe what we would call small valleys, uh, that were just never seen as suitable for sugar cultivation. And you can go there to see remnants of what the island used to be like. Uh, but by and large, uh, Barbados is is cleared. Uh, it's an island of rolling hills. Uh, and it's not a volcanic island like many in the Caribbean. So you don't have that central peak. You've instead got... Um, Plains and hills that gently slope down towards the ocean, um, natural terraces, just from the way that Barbados was formed as it rose up out of the ocean, and this has been uh, put to use by the agricultural industry there.
0: The soil's still fairly rich.
1: It's it's not as rich as in some of the volcanic islands. It needs to be uh, supplemented with fer- with fertilizers.
0: Well, of course the, and I'm trying to remember were there native Barbadians there.
1: That's an interesting question. There, There is evidence of long-term habitation by uh, natives of the Caribbean in Barbados that that long predate uh, the arrival of Europeans. However, when the English came and began to colonize Barbados in 1627, the island was uninhabited.
0: That's what I thought I remembered, yes. Um, so, probably Carib Indians?
1: Um... Yeah, the the identity of the various cultural groups that have moved through the Caribbean um, is still a subject of debate. Uh, We typically refer to the two major groups as the Caribs and the Arawaks.
0: Okay. All right. Well, the English come in 1627, and they plant some tobacco and a a few other things. Um, And then there's a tremendous influx during the English Civil War. Um, and that's going to generate folks who are going to come out here to South Carolina. That's some of those, those people. The English Civil War is mid-1600s uh, between Oliver Cromwell, the Roundheads, the Puritans, and the Royalists. The English in exile who are coming to Barbados are Royalists, and that's going to be the group from which many of the first South Carolina settlers come. But the introduction of sugar to Barbados literally was transformative in terms of the society. And, Russell, I'll let you pick up with that.
1: Well, it's it's hard to overstate how important sugar is to Barbados' history. Uh, prior to the introduction of sugar, uh, Barbados was not a wealthy colony. Um, there were food provisions. There was tobacco that you mentioned. There were a few other cash crops being tried. Nothing really took off like sugar, It was introduced uh, by Sephardic Jews and Dutch sugar planters from Brazil that were seeking other places to um, introduce their crop, and it really took off in Barbados. It had some major transformative effects on both the landscape, which we've already discussed, but also on the culture, on the way that society was organized. Sugar does best on large, single-holding plantations— not on these small-scale farms that had been used for tobacco and food provisions. So what happened was the wealthier landowners ended up consolidating land. They would buy up their neighboring farms. Uh, those landowners then would have to seek someplace else to live. And this fueled the initial emigration, the, the departure from Barbados.
0: Russell, we need to pause a moment and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgars Journal, and I'm having a conversation with Professor Russell Fielding of Coastal Carolina University, and we're talking about the Barbados-South Carolina connection. You, you mentioned the land holdings were small. In fact, the workforce before sugar was primarily indentured servitude, white labor from, from England. Uh, in fact, I always like to tell the story to my students. If you the old movies, somebody got shanghaied in the 19th century. Well, in the 17th century, people were Barbados. There would be a recruiter from Barbados, go to the local pub, uh, give the lads a drink, and the next thing when they wake up, they are on a ship to Barbados and find that they had been in, uh, put in indentured servitude. But the way the law worked in those days, once their indenture was over, they were granted land, small plots of land. I think it was 10 acres, which which isn't much. But again, before sugar, there were lots of basically yeoman farmers on the island.
1: That's exactly right. So Barbados was a verb, as as you put it. it it's it, You would become Barbados. And, and many of those people who were Barbados, or Barbadoed, as they would say down there, um, were from Ireland uh, as well as England. So you you had a, a, a large Irish presence. Um, you'll still find some descendants from that population. There's not many. Um, and they cluster on the east coast of Barbados, which uh, in, in Bajan geography is, is the, the wild, wild east. It's, it's the, the opposite orientation as America. Um, the east coast is more rugged, uh, faces the weather that comes in off the Atlantic, and is a more difficult uh, place to live, environmentally speaking. Um, Those Irish laborers, as you said, did eventually. Many of them earned their freedom, were given land. But when the consolidation into sugar happened, they were often the first to be displaced.
0: Well, as the consolidation took place, even the largest plantations in in Barbados, um, in South Carolina we think thousands of acres, it was in the hundreds of acres, because of course the, the island is smaller, but a s- several hundred acres of land in sugar could produce a vast fortune, and it did for a small number of people.
1: That's right. the The wealth was really concentrated among the the uppermost economic level.
0: And then the the question can, came up: Well, who's going to do the labor? Are we going to continue to bring these Barbadoed lads in from? England or Ireland? Or are we are we going to do what they've done in Brazil and the Dutch Islands, where uh, the sugar labor force is enslaved Africans?
1: And and they went full in on the enslaved Africans. Uh, between 1644 and 1680, the black population of Barbados increased from about two and a half percent to about seventy percent. Uh, there was massive uh, enslavement that went on and that fueled the sugar rush there in Barbados.
0: Well, and. Barbados went from being Little England, uh, which is what some people referred to it. It was, you know, a piece of home here in the, in the Caribbean, to an overwhelming black majority. Exactly. And not a very stable black majority, because on the Sugar Islands, and it wasn't just true in Barbados, but it was all the English islands and certainly the French and, and Dutch islands, the labor force was literally worked to death.
1: It was, um, and, it, and it's an unfortunate part of the the Bajan history that many of the landowners found it more profitable to simply work their slaves to death and then replace them than to provide any sort of uh, humane working conditions or health care for them when they needed it.
0: That would change when slavery was introduced in the, into the Carolinas, but yeah, and I've, I've read the accounts, and it's... The phrase "literally being worked to death" was true,
1: Absolutely. in Barbados. It it, it was uh, slaves slaves died um, very young and very fast after arriving in Barbados because of the brutality of the the labor. Uh, sugar plantation work is sometimes quite literally backbreaking. Uh, you're exposed not only to the environmental hazards when you're out in the fields, but to the industrial hazards of being in the mill. It's a very uh, mechanized form of labor. Uh, with a lot of risks that go along with that.
0: And they were not seasoned, as it were. They never lived to be... And seasoning, of course, uh, in the colonies was if you could survive the first season, the diseases, then you kind of were inoculated against the, against the worst. It didn't always happen, but that was the sort of home wisdom, not just in Barbados, but it certainly was was true in South Carolina. But the picture of working these... Me, mostly men to death. The the, the gender imbalance was tremendous uh, because, as you said, they weren't worried about producing through slavery younger children. That was that was a problem. That was maintenance.
1: That's that's true. And and the gender imbalance extended to the planter class as well. Many of the uh, plantation owners in Barbados were in fact absentee owners. They would come from England to. Um, oversee to make certain decisions to make certain changes to their plantations but their homes and more importantly their families were based in England and that served over time to maintain that connection between barbados and england that was strained here in the carolinas and through many of the the other uh, north american colonies
0: and these men who went into sugar early became fantastically wealthy
1: uh, amazingly wealthy. I mean, they they would have been the uh, the tech giants uh, of today. It, it, it's really hard to fathom how much money sugar brought in, especially considering its role in the diet. It, it's it's not a necessary food crop. It is a it is a sweetener. It is something to make life and food a little bit more palatable, um, not something to prolong life or to. Uh, offer health and yet this this luxury this delicacy brought in so much money to barbados and to the people whose personal economies were tied to barbados
0: one of the things those absentee landlords did when they got to england their families were there but they bought seats in parliament and influenced government policy
1: exactly and and often would influence government policy that that helped their own uh, interests their own economic interests so, for example, uh, trade policy. Trade had to go through England, Yes. and this was not so much a problem for Barbados um, because sugar found its biggest market uh, in England. For products that came from other colonies, uh, the Carolinas, for example, this was a bigger problem because they f- had found markets and then were restricted from those markets for their products, such as rice, cotton, and indigo. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and of course, tobacco from England, England practiced uh, mercantilism. Within the empire, you were supposed to to trade only within the empire. In the 1720s, South Carolina would get an exemption for rice. They could trade to Spain and to Portugal primarily. So we've got land consolidation, we've got a racial imbalance going from a white majority to an overwhelmingly enslaved population constant fear of slave revolts. The slave codes in the 17th century are written and rewritten. Each one is more draconian than than the first. And so, since they're putting everything in sugar, they got to import foodstuffs. And this is the beginning of the South Carolina story.
1: Yes, it is. They, they literally planted Barbados with as much sugar as the island could fit. Um, some sugar plantations went right up, almost literally right up to the coastline. Um, it, it was amazing to see the transformation in some of these old maps that show Barbados's land cover changing over time and and you're exactly right they they did not plant food crops to a large extent simply because that land was more valuable under sugar they looked to import food crops from first neighboring islands and then from places as far away as South carolina
0: and since they weren't particularly concerned about nutrition of the enslaved population, the foodstuffs were primarily imported for the white minority. Yes. Of course. So, we've got those royalists out there in Barbados, and when the monarchy is restored, all of a sudden, they're asking King Charles II for favors.
1: Yes. They they asked him for permission and funding to seek new colonies. This could involve taking colonies from other European powers, or it could involve establishing new colonies on land that was was not yet claimed by the Europeans. In either case, it ended up being a, a situation where English colonialists were uh, acquiring land that was lived on by by someone else. They tried Jamaica first and, and eventually were successful in establishing Jamaica as an English colony. Uh But it turned out that Jamaica was not the ideal place from which to to acquire the provisions and and timber and other non-sugar agricultural products that Barbados needed. So they continued to look elsewhere.
0: Eventually, they would get the Carolina Grant. Need to remind folks, this went from Virginia, the northern boundary, down below the St. Mary's River and from the Atlantic to the Pacific. An incredible land grant to these eight men, the Lord's proprietors of South Carolina, a number of whom had Barbados connection.
1: Several of them did. yes, they they were uh, landowners or joint owners of plantations on Barbados. Some of them were themselves from Barbados. They had been born there. um and they they did. They petitioned King Charles for the rights and and of course, then the the funding to establish the colony here. It, it's it's always funny when I, I hear of the, the geographical distribution of these colonies as ranging from the Atlantic to the Pacific, a, a distance that no one at the time even was able to estimate based yeah. on the, our, our lack of knowledge of the continent.
0: Yes. I, I sometimes, or like when I was still teaching undergraduates, I'd put a map of the current United States and show the current states, the cities that were in you know, Birmingham, Dallas, Houston... Los Angeles, you you name it, Nashville. This tremendous swath of of land. There were several stabs at settling Carolina, as it was called, before the successful colony in, in Charlestown. And a Barbadian, Sir John Yeamans, was the principal character. Not a very nice guy. In fact, in fact I think his story is, you know, very typical of the swashbucklers, who came out to the Carolinas and made Charleston succeed. He was a sugar planter. He was a baronet, so he was Sir John Yeamans. But he was having a fling with his partner's wife. His partner died under mysterious circumstances, and he very quickly married the widow and her estate. He led the first attempt at colonization in what's now North Carolina. It did not succeed. So he came back home to Barbados, and then he was actually named to be the first governor of South Carolina, but he changed his mind. It took him a couple of years to get out here. And when he did, he seized control, and the first thing he did was make money off of the settlers. He imported foodstuffs, which he then sold at exorbitant prices to his fellow South Carolinians. And then he decided it was time... He better go back home. He was getting ready to be uh, removed, so he went back to Barbados. But you know, I just think his his story is very typical of the swashbucklers. I mean, the the people who were in the in Barbados and came after Carolina are straight out of Errol Flynn movies.
1: Absolutely, and and Yamen's in particular. You know, he's he's no exemplary public servant. He he was looking to enrich himself, like many of the so-called Barbadian adventurers were were looking to do.
0: Well. There were visitors to all of the Caribbean islands, and in describing the English, and it was uh, a Franciscan friar who made the observation, they all came out here. The English came out to get rich. That was their their main purpose. That's what they were going to do when they came to Carolina. There were no rules, and getting rich, how you did it, nobody asked questions. I've often found it ironic that certainly in the 1950s when people talked about old South Carolina or old South, well, we were always a planting family. When you came out to Carolina or Barbados, you might get it from trading pirates, from the slave trade, robbing Indians. It didn't make any difference.
1: Absolutely. both, Both the Carolinas and the Caribbean were, as they say, beyond the line. Right, and, and and there's a geographical meaning to that, but the the political meaning, of course, was outside the purview, outside of of the jurisdiction, uh, by and large, of the British government. Things that happened here stayed here, and as you just said, people didn't ask questions back home.
0: One more thing about Sir John Yeamans, the assembly in Barbados actually discussed what he had done, but nobody that he had done in his Neighbor's wife. That was just. He got away with
1: it. Exactly, he did. And and it's ironic today that Yaman's in Barbados is most strongly linked to a plantation that still exists uh, called Saint Nicholas Abbey, which is is a bit misleadingly named. It's not an abbey. There's no religious structure uh, on on the site. Uh, that's just the name of the plantation. But because of its name, people ascribe almost a a, a religious or otherwise um, exemplary nature to the place. Uh, for example, when we were living there, this is where the the Christmas concert that everyone goes to and lets, lets their kids run on the lawn while the, the orchestra plays Christmas carols uh, takes place. If visitors to St. Nicholas Abbey today had any idea of John Yeaman's history and reputation, I think they would feel quite conflicted in visiting that place.
0: Well, St. Nicholas Abbey, and I've been there. I, I, have, I have been to Barbados. You'll also find Colletons and Middletons in Barbados. It looks like it was transplanted out of 17th century England.
1: Absolutely, it does. And and this was by intent, right? I mean, people came from 17th century England to Barbados, and they built structures that would uh, resemble what they were used to at home. After the first round of these structures were built and proved to be incompatible with the Bajan climate, both the the heat and also the occasional hurricane, they were modified to better suit the tropical environment. But still, that resemblance is maintained.
0: Then you come to the architectural influence of open porches, shutters, all of which came to the Carolinas.
1: Came to the Carolinas from Barbados most directly. So I like to think when I'm sitting out on a front porch enjoying a nice glass of iced tea that I've got Barbados to thank for that.
0: And it wasn't just the architecture they imported. They imported the dress habits, which, of course, in a tropical climate.
1: ...back home to England when things were particularly brutish.
0: Yes, are when you come out to carolina and the largest plantations in barbados at least in terms of slave holding in barbados you were considered a large planter if you owned more than 60 slaves a middle planter 20 to 60 and then small planters fewer than than 20 slaves and most plantations weren't larger than 200 acres
1: right and this has always been a limiting factor in Barbados and, quite honestly, throughout much of the Eastern Caribbean. The islands are very small, and this is a fact of geography that is very difficult to overcome without looking beyond the coastline of each small island. Barbados is 166 square miles, which is less than half the size of Calhoun County, South Carolina's smallest county. <laughs> yes.
0: And so, when they, they're coming out to Carolina, they are bringing their slaves, a number of them do. I mean, this is, they don't come empty-handed. In comparing the settlement in South Carolina, beginning in 1670 with Virginia and, uh, and other colonies, they have starving times. That doesn't happen in South Carolina. They came out prepared, willing to do anything to make a buck. And as Peter Wood and Dan Littlefield, who have studied slavery in South Carolina, during what was called the settlement period, the early stages of slavery, the owner, he may have 20 or 30 slaves, but he was not sitting on his veranda drinking a mint julep. He was, he was working himself, either supervising or phys- the smaller planters were physically in the field uh, with their slaves. Now, that changed in about 20 years. Uh, and of course, within 40 years of settlement in the early 18th century, South Carolina got a black majority just like Barbados. And soon, by the time you get to the Revolution, the Georgetown area and parts of the low country have population ratios that are similar to those of the parishes in in Barbados. And the death rate is eerily the same as well.
1: You're exactly right they 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 had a model that worked for them. Uh, And by them, I mean, of course, the the planter class. This model was tested and proven in Barbados, and they imported that into Carolina. This is why they didn't have to go through those starvation periods, like the colonies that you mentioned, Virginia and Maryland, for example. They were starting from scratch in those colonies. In Carolina, they had been through this before. Maybe the same individuals coming here were not the same that were the large planting class in Barbados, because they had been bought out. But what they sought to do was to replicate the system here in in Carolina with they they themselves as the planting class. When they came
0: to Carolina, one of the reasons for settling Carolina was, besides getting rich, but was to provide foodstuffs, grow foodstuffs that could be shipped to Barbados, and timber, because they had Clear cut the forests. In fact, the first trade ship that left South Carolina for Barbados carried timber.
1: Sure. They they found here what they were lacking in Barbados, and that was almost unlimited land that was naturally under timber, which could be cut mm-hmm. uh, and then could be farmed. And and there was really, uh, as they saw it, no limit. You could always move move inland. Uh, remember that they were given the land from the Atlantic to the Pacific, and and you're
0: talking about land grants in the in
1: the thousands of acres. Oh, absolutely, and it and it was it was incentivized to bring your enslaved workers. Uh, an individual arriving in South Carolina in in Carolina, as it was called then, uh, was given a certain amount of land. If he brought his family along, he was given more. If he brought enslaved laborers along, he was given more acreage per slave. So there was absolutely an incentive to import everything necessary, uh, capital and labor, to reestablish the plantation economy here in a new colony.
0: Now, while many of the the Barbadians who came to Carolina, and I think it's interesting that during the early colonial period up through the 1720s or 1730s anyone who came from an english caribbean island was called a barbadian uh, and by the way they threw bermuda into that too but, which is not a caribbean island but if you came from the the islands you were considered a barbadian and the barbadians quickly came to dominate the political, social, and economic life of, of South Carolina.
1: Yes, absolutely. It it had an outsized influence as compared to its its land area, um, but it certainly corresponded to its economic importance within the English Empire.
0: We earlier talked about there were 175 big planters in Barbados. About 10 percent of those sent relatives out here to South Carolina that's where you get the Middletons, the Colletons, and Gibbses, who those families, are, they're still with us today.
1: And still in uh, Barbados as well.
0: Yeah. Of the Middling planters, there were about 33 families who came here. And then you actually had merchants from Barbados who thought, well, we'll try planting. Ladson, Skinking, Quelch. I mean, they brought energy. They brought wealth. And I like to say their motto was Carpe Diem.
1: It, it seems to have been uh, they they came without necessarily the intention of staying mm-hmm. and certain historical events that later transpired led to them staying they they the, the planters stayed here to a much greater uh, degree or at a much higher rate than they did in Barbados, despite that not necessarily being their intent from the beginning
0: that that is correct there, there were a few who moved to England in in the 18th century, but for the most part, they they remained here in in South Carolina. And part of that being prepared for the new colony is one of the first things they did when they landed, the governor was ordered to establish an experimental garden. What's gonna grow here? They actually tried rice and indigo and cotton, which none of those worked. But they very quickly imported cattle from Virginia, and Yemens had, had a part of that. And the first major industry in South Carolina was cattle, which they then shipped to Barbados.
1: Yes, absolutely. And that, that like you said, was food for the planting class in Barbados that was grown here. The, the system was working as intended. This so-called colony of a colony, Carolina, became the provisioning point to send foodstuffs back to Barbados so that Barbados could remain under sugar.
0: The other major early industry was timber, because again, Barbados has used all theirs. So there's a ready market for Carolina produce before you get to rice and indigo during the colonial period.
1: Absolutely. Uh, when, When the adventurers came, they had the idea of establishing or, or I should say reestablishing the the Barbadian model of plantation agriculture, and, and we're just seeking a crop to, to use to make it work. Uh, crops take time to grow. Uh, cows can be imported from Virginia, as you said. Timber was growing already. If they were logging old-growth timber, it was here and ready to be cut. It was almost an instant beginning to the economy.
0: And in Barbados, you not only had the problem of, well, the Spanish or the Dutch might decide to descend upon you, or the French, and wipe out your plantation. You had that to worry about. You did not have to worry about Native Americans, at least not in Barbados, but there was the health issue in the tropics. And by the time you get to the 1660s and 1670s, you've got the black majority and you've got the the constant fear of slave rebellions. The,
1: the Caribbean islands during the colonial era were a difficult place for Europeans to live. Um, they, they did not believe that they were physiologically uh, uh, created to live in that environment. Um, and whether or not that's true, there were certain threats to their survival that were ongoing. Disease, as you mentioned, uh, the competing European powers that were all in such close proximity Uh, With these islands being so close to each other, it it was a patchwork of European colonialism. Um, Adventurers from the French islands, the Dutch islands, the Spanish islands, and then of course the English islands like Barbados would constantly be trying to seize territory from each other. If not land territory itself, then property in, in, in terms of the cargo being shipped between the mainland and the islands or between the islands themselves then, of course, like you said, the, the constant threat of, of slave uprisings, which only increased as the slave populations grew and as the treatment of the enslaved laborers declined, if that can be imagined. There were several slave uprisings in Barbados. Uh, one of the most notable, which is still commemorated in Barbados today, was led by an enslaved man named Bussa, who is now considered one of Barbados's national heroes. My son uh, went through his first year of school, what we would call kindergarten, in the Barbadian educational system. And they learned on National Heroes Day about Errol Barrow, the first prime minister of independent Barbados. And right alongside Mr. Barrow was Bussa, the leader of one of the most notable slave revolts.
0: And when the slave revolts were put down, they were put down viciously.
1: Oh, absolutely. They they were used as an example to deter the same kind of activity from happening in the future.
0: And that would come out to South Carolina as well, because South Carolina eventually, when they began to, in the 1690s, they had their first slave code. It was copied from Barbados.
1: It was almost verbatim. Uh, It did pass through Jamaica first on its way to South Carolina, like many of the individuals did. Uh, But it really wasn't revised very much uh, during the process. The Slave Code started here in South Carolina, was modeled after and in some ways copied directly from that in Barbados.
0: Under that Slave Code is a master, and that was the term used, master had complete control over that human property, life and death
1: complete control and immunity from prosecution if the so-called master decided to take the life of one of his enslaved laborers.
0: We need to take a pause and let our listeners know that this is Walter Edgar's journal, and I'm talking to Professor Russell Fielding of Coastal Carolina University, and we're discussing the Barbados-South Carolina connection. Russell, let's talk about the maintenance of this connection over time.
1: It changed over time. And, and there were certain historical events that that directed the ebbing and flowing of this relationship between uh, Carolina and, and Barbados. Um, I think this culminated in the American Revolution when Carolina threw its hat in with the other American colonies. And Barbados remained a British colony well into the 20th century. It, it, Barbados was not... Um, granted independence until 1966 so there was a long period there centuries long that resulted in a a constant linkage between barbados and england that was quite honestly severed between the carolina colonies and and england
0: okay but like like i say though in the 1970s certainly here in south carolina folks and that was with the tricentennial uh, there was a rediscovery of This this linkage. Then people began to say, well, where did the Piazzas in Charleston come from? Now, that's still debated, that's still debated. But houses might eventually be brick, but they were built for the climate, and houses built for the climate were different in South Carolina than they were in Virginia and elsewhere. The slave code, the seize the day mentality, because in colonial South Carolina, you had the threats to life just as you did in Barbados you had well for most of it you had native americans you had the spaniards in florida to the west you had the french the disease and by 1708 a black majority a slave revolt so the wealthy classes in south carolina behaved just as those had in barbados they did not one thing different, they did not go back to England. This, this was home. But flaunting one's wealth was de rigueur. That's, every, that's fine. You got it. You flaunt it. And nobody thought uh, any ill of it.
1: And, and people were willing to overlook uh, certain activities that that really should have been thought of more critically. Uh, they were willing to overlook obvious human rights abuses that that even at the time could have been recognized as such. They were willing to overlook uh, environmental degradation that, again, were resulting in um, changes to the landscape that were that were not beneficial to the activities of the time. Another threat that you mentioned uh, previously was the threat of piracy, and here, here's a direct connection between the Carolinas and 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 the Caribbean, which turned after a time. It started off that some of these these individuals that would have been identified as pirates were involved in the founding of the Carolina colony. But as the wealth started to grow here and to be rooted here, those pirates began to prey on Carolina-based ships that were sending their goods and sometimes their wealth elsewhere. It, it was this turning point of, of piracy from being an ally to being an opposition that accelerated the inward-looking nature of the Carolina colonists and and the turning away from both the motherland in England and the other colonies in in the Caribbean.
0: Until the proprietors were tossed out by the South Carolinians in 1719. So you've got until 1720 and the proprietors were gone... The British Board of Trade is sending investigators out here, time and again, for r- officials who are benefiting from the pirate trade, including governors. You know, uh, they didn't care about the Indian trade, which was also corrupt, but they, they cared about the customs and the piracy.
1: That, that was seen as stealing directly from the crown. And so it, it was investigated as, as, a, as a very real economic threat to the British government.
0: Well, and of course, uh, Blackbeard uh, threatened Charleston. The ransom was medical supplies. But one of the things they did, which of course is, is all over the world today, was kidnapping for ransom. They would, you know, if they found out a rich planter and his family were headed back to England for a trip, they'd seize them and then ransom them demand ransom of some kind or another. So trading with pirates nobody asked questions until about 1720 and then that that trade had pretty well gone by the by the boards.
1: Right, when the pirates uh ceased being trading partners and started being threats uh on their own uh to the commerce that was going on from Carolina, then that 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 trust and that kind of unspoken agreement really began to break down. Uh-huh.
0: And, and one thing pirates did in, in the islands, even in, in the English pirates did it to the English islands as well, is you could anchor off the coast and go into a plantation, seize the slaves and property, and then leave. You didn't have to fight a battle. That could also happen in the Carolinas, and it did on, on a couple of occasions. But anyway... As you look back through the, your own research and your connection in the in the West Indies, um, how are you bringing this to co- your students at Coastal Carolina?
1: Well, it, it's really exciting because, as you said, this this has been an unknown or, or, or underexplored chapter of Carolina history in in recent decades. And and you're correct that in the 1970s there did seem to be an academic and, and somewhat uh, popular resurgence of interest in this, in this topic. And I think we have Rhoda Green to thank for that. She, she really kicked off the, the popular interest in this connection, both here and in Barbados. Uh, so Rhoda is the, is the director of the Barbados Carolina Legacy Foundation, mm-hmm. which is instrumental in keeping this topic on the minds of people um, in both places mm-hmm. today. For my own part, what I want to do is incorporate this into the Coastal Carolina University curriculum, uh, specifically in my own field, which is environmental geography. Uh, Too often, the legacies of colonialism and political histories and uh, slavery and, and agricultural history is seen as being the dominion of historians only and and i think it's it's a rich enough topic to be shared among academic disciplines so i as a geographer am most interested in the in the intersections between human and environmental history how has the treatment of human beings most importantly through the slave trade paralleled the treatment of landscapes We talked about the the deforestation of Barbados. I think that is a perfect analogy for the dehumanization of the people that were brought over to work the fields that were created through that deforestation. So I'm planning a course right now that is moving along slowly because of the pandemic. Uh, It's going to involve a substantial amount of travel, which right now is not something that we can do. But it will involve field sites throughout the Low Country, and then it will culminate in about a two-week trip to Barbados. I will bring Coastal Carolina students down to Barbados. They will see then the connections in terms of architecture, uh, language, cuisine, um, agriculture that I consider to be more superficial. But then they'll dig deeper and they'll see some of those underlying cultural connections between the two places that I think are the strongest maintenance of this connection that we've been talking about. Russell,
0: let's talk about some of those cultural connections.
1: The culture of both Barbados and South Carolina was established within a certain environment, and that environment was based on an economic system that was tried and proven in Barbados and imported here. I want my students to see the legacies and the the vestiges of that original system. I want them to see how land ownership is is still maintained today as a reflection of how it was originally distributed as part of land grants in both Barbados and and the Carolinas. I want my students to see how government structures are established to um, both favor and and aid certain groups of the of the population, but also to manage natural resources in a way that is both sustainable and uh, promoting of of a good, strong economy. I want them to come away, not just knowing that, The petticoat staircase, for example, uh, is prevalent in both architectural forms here and in Barbados.
0: Well, what do you mean by the petticoat staircase?
1: The double entrance staircase uh, that we see so commonly here in South Carolina, that's also a common architectural form in in Barbados. Uh, Of course, my students will recognize those um, superficial characteristics uh, easily, but my intent with the curriculum is to have them dig deeper into some of those cultural and historical connections as well.
0: Well, in terms of the environment, we did not touch on this, but you talked about the exploitation of the environment. If you go to the laws of South Carolina, there's almost an entire book on the cuts and creeks and bridges, which were artificial linkages uh, in the low country that completely changed salinization, fresh water. I mean, it, it transformed. It was for the rice culture. But, oh, we're going to join Creek A with Creek B. Well, they just did,
1: and it changed things. Absolutely. Our geography, and more specifically our hydrology, is a vestige of that rice-based plantation agriculture. And there are similar, long-lasting, still-existing geographical changes that you can see in Barbados. Rather than just seeing and noting the changes— I want my students to see the connection between those geographical decisions, those environmental decisions and the decisions that affected real live human beings at the time. Wendell Berry has written that there is in fact no distinction between the fate of the land and the fate of people. When one is abused, the other suffers. And I I really use that as my unifying call for the integration of human and environmental history in the geography and environmental studies work that I do.
0: All right. Russell, I hate to tell you, but Alfred's giving us the wind-up signal, so any last words for our listeners before we sign off?
1: Well, I I look forward to exploring more details of this connection between these two places that that I have come to love very much. I would welcome any uh, stories or anecdotes that any of the listeners have that they would like to share on specific connections that they've experienced uh, between their lives here in South Carolina and the lives of maybe their ancestors or, or, or others that they know in the Caribbean.
0: All right. Well, Russell Fielding, professor of geography at Coastal Carolina, thanks so much for being with us today on The Journal.
1: It's my pleasure. Thank you.
0: This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's journal. I know that I did. The past is not truly past. It can continue in the present. The institutions, the ideas, the cultural exchanges that settlers from Barbados brought to South Carolina, both good and bad, we can see some of those even today, 350 years later. Good and bad, pleasant, unpleasant, The Barbadian connection was an incredible influence on the development of the state of South Carolina. This is Walter Edgar. Join me next week for more of The Journal.
1: Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina Public Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter
0: Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina Public Radio.